Hello and welcome to the Roundup here inside the beautiful Oklahoma Territory Museum and Carnegie Library here in downtown Guthrie. I'm your host Chris Evans and uh, we invite you down here to the uh, museum. They have wonderful things. It's always changing and it's just a great place here. Young and old, you always learn something new every time. Located here at 406 East Oklahoma in beautiful downtown Guthrie. With us today is Representative John Pfeiffer from District 38 who serves as the Deputy 4 Leader. Representative Gary Mize from District 31 who serves as an Assistant 4 Leader. And Senator Chuck Hall, District 20 who is the vice chair for the Senate Finance Committee. Well, let's start off, with, you know, you know Representative Pfeiffer, what a year makes uh, from last year. Last year, trying to find a billion dollars, cut a billion dollars. This year, you walk into a $575 million surplus. And uh, it seems like a little bit easier going time compared to a year ago. <laughs> it, most things in life are easier than, than, than what we went through a year ago. Um, we, we had to step up and we made some tough decisions. Not all of them were universally popular, but because we made those tough decisions last year, we found ourselves in a lot better fiscal situation this year in the state of Oklahoma uh, than, than we have before, than we have in the, in the previous four years I've served. Not only that, we have a lot of new House members, a lot of new senators, and a whole new executive staff. There's just a general, a general change and a more positive attitude at the Capitol. Uh, we're getting things done. I mean, we've already substantially reformed uh, the, the way the government works. Uh, probably the biggest change in government reform since we quit electing Supreme Court justices uh, that, that has already passed out of the House and Senate and been signed by the governor Wednesday. Um, we're, we're now just trying to hone in on where we need to put more money uh, back in after four or five years worth of cuts and, and continue to move the state forward. Gary, Chuck, you guys are in big leadership roles already with what you guys do, but how's the day-to-day -day transition be from going from the election to actually in the House and learning where everything is and how it works there? Go I, I, I want to defer to the upper chamber. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it, it's been it's been interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know that anybody can be fully prepared uh, to uh, you know to, to enter into office. So, you know, we spend a lot of time on the campaign trail, having an expectation. Uh, but uh, we, when you get in there uh, and things start to flow, and you are under under deadlines, and you're working in committees, uh, you know, it's eye opening. Uh, so I spend an enormous amount of time trying to wrap my arms. Uh, around uh, every piece of legislation to the extent I can. I feel like I'm back in college and I'm majoring in everything. Uh, so, you know, what what I thought I had a general understanding of, I, I come to find out that uh, that I've got to work at this, and so. And I watch you a lot on the computer. You take a lot of notes. I do take a lot of notes. I, uh, you know, I try to go in, I try to be prepared, uh, because I feel like that at some point I'm gonna need to come back to the district and I'm gonna have to answer for my votes. Uh, and so I wanna be able to clearly, in, in distinctly be able to explain uh, the decisions I made on the floor. How's Office 300 going? You know, it's it's been a lot. It's been a lot. It's a lot of information. It's a pretty steep learning curve. Um, and you know, one of the nuances that you have to navigate on the House side is there's 101 of you, uh, so it's a lot more relationships to to develop. But um, you know, I, I think it's been a wonderful experience so far. I've said this countless times, but it's really an honor for me to come back and represent the area that that I grew up in. And there's good, you know, good senior members that uh, when you do have a question, you can go and and ask them, hey, what what are we doing here, and what am I what am I stepping in that I don't even know. Right. And, you know, Gary and Chuck, you guys, financial backgrounds, you know, running, you always hear what's going on, news, papers, all that stuff. Now that you're there, what, what kind of idea what financially where Oklahoma is? 
Well, I think uh, I think, and I've heard this a lot that you know, and I wasn't there for the for the past several years that Representative Pfeiffer was there when we had the budget deficits. Uh, but a lot of people have told me that sometimes it's a little bit more difficult when you have money as opposed to not having the money, uh, because it's just simple to say we don't have it, and we can't do it. Now we've got a little bit, and the, and everybody's got their hand out. Uh, and so I think, at least from my perspective, that we really need to focus uh, on on uh, on basic government fundamentals. So we have an opportunity to take a look at, at education, at transportation, at public safety, uh, and, uh, and public health. Uh, and if we focus on that and we take care of the off-the-top spending uh, that, uh, that's required to cover our bond indebtedness, um, then I think that we can, uh, that we can be fiscally responsible uh, with the excess that we have. I've heard, I've heard the same thing, you know, that it can be tougher uh, when you do have an excess than in years where, where you don't. Um, and I think if you're if you're honest and you're paying attention, you can see really quickly how that how that can be the case. Um, but the approach that I take to that, um, I sit on a on the finance subcommittee. Um, so I'm not as involved in those dollar discussions as uh, as some others. But I think if you're mindful always of stewardship, because you are stewarding someone else's dollar, uh, I feel that my private sector experience has has allowed me some uh, some benefit there uh, because we're handling someone else's money. But if you're if you're mindful um, of what you're doing with that money, I spoke a lot about that on the doorstep, you know. In Russian Pfeiffer, you know, uh, Governor Stitt's talking about maybe take a good part of that and put it into the rainy day fund. So when there are scenarios like there was last year, we have a little bit to lean on. We, we do. the uh, A big portion of, of the money is going to go off the top automatically because of the rainy day formula. Uh, to what extent we put extra into the formula or into the rainy day uh, savings account is going to depend a lot on where budget negotiations go uh, between House, Senate, uh, and, and, the, and of course the governor's office. Um, Two weeks ago, I believe it was, that the House presented their first uh, kind of draft budget to the Senate. Uh, the Senate did the same. Kind of echoes what these guys said. Everybody's, you know, everybody says, "Oh, it's tougher in, in years when you have money." Uh, about the middle of last year, I didn't think we were ever going to see a year where we actually had more money and didn't have to cut. So, um, it, it is going to be interesting. We've also seen a lot of bills passed with with title off of, and kind of the what Representative Mai said, we spent a lot of that money in theory already. I mean, I think uh, the State Board of Equalization says that we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 535 million extra. I think we've probably spent seven to 800 million already. Um, now, not all of those are gonna become laws. They're all just kind of ideas right now as we keep on moving through the process. Uh, but there's definitely lots of, lots of worthy causes, lots of places where people think we need to spend that money. But I think one of the nicer things we have, especially with this large of a freshman class coming into the Oklahoma House, is we can really remind ourselves this isn't the government's money. This is the people's money that we're using for the betterment of the state. And it and it's nice to kind of refocus that, that you know, that the government doesn't have money. Taxpayers give us money and we use that for the betterment of the state. And it kind of reshifts and reminds us of, of that, that, that sometimes people who've been there a little longer, we, we tend to kind of forget and think of it in terms of, well, this is the state's money. And it's, it's really not. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll move on to education here real quick. And uh, uh, the Senate passed 31-17 by a vote there uh, on four or five school day a week. Uh, and, and I'll say this, I've come 180 on, on this deal. When four-day school, four school came out, I was like, eh. But the more I look into, the more I, I understand it. I, it. It does work for some. But uh, you were one of the no votes on that. And, uh, and you know, 
personally, if I was voting, I would maybe vote no on it too. Not, you probably have more information, but you know, it might work here, but it might not work here. Well, so uh, I was one of the drivers of, of wanting to uh, to maintain the option for the for the four day, and it was a little bit difficult for me because it went against Senate leadership, uh, one of their one of the pillar things that they're trying to accomplish in this session. But you know, my Senate district, you know, I represent about seventy eight thousand people in four counties. I have four school districts that are, are using or utilizing the, the four day school week. Uh, when they started kicking around the idea of this uh, of mandating a, a five day school week, I got very concerned because I have my schools that are in the four or doing the four day uh, are actually uh, excelling academically. Uh, in fact, a, a community right next to us here in Guthrie, over in Coyle, uh, you know, they won an academic state title uh, in basketball, so it's working for them. And so I really wanted to work with Senate leadership and and the author of that uh, of Senate Bill 441 uh, to give an opt out provision. Uh, for those schools that where it where it works, and we wanted to we wanted to tie that to uh, to academic success, and could they show uh, a financial benefit to being uh, to being being four day? Well, that morphed into uh, uh, that language was actually taken out, and now those rules are going to be promulgated uh, by the State Department of Education. So these four day schools were going to have to agree uh, to adopt some policy that they haven't seen yet, uh, and that really bothered me and so um, so I had to I had to be a no vote on that it did pass out of the Senate be headed over to the house and I'll let these guys uh, talk about where they're at on that but I like the local control aspect particularly for the from those from for those schools where it's it's really working I, I will if I could Chris just yeah, real quick so. say that I do understand that there are some abuses in this we have schools uh, there's 92 schools out of uh, the school districts in the state of Oklahoma that are, are on four days uh, uh, and some of those are going as as minimum as 135 days. Uh, that may be somewhat of an abuse, uh, but uh, like I said, the four school districts uh, in Senate District 20, it's working for them, they're excelling academically, uh, and they are seeing a cost savings, and it's been great for teacher retention. And you say 135 schools are required to either go 180 days or 1,080 hours, one of the two. You can kind of come by them a little bit, so that would be... Yeah, so, the, so Senate Bill 441 actually gives three options you can you can do the the, the 180 days uh, or you can do 165 days but with a minimum of 1080 hours uh, or you can do 1080 hours and then and then make a request under the rules promulgated by the State Department of Education to opt out but we don't know what those rules are yet they will be determined uh, at, a, at a later date the one point that I want to make is this coming school year for 2019 2020 everything remains the same. So we're looking at the 2020-2021 school year for these changes to take place. And the state superintendent, Joy Hockmeister, is in favor of the five-day five deal. I know you guys will see, it, see a little bit more on it, but, uh, you know, it's just, I don't think Oklahoma City Public Schools, Norman, Mustang, Guthrie, schools like that would ever think about going to a four-day deal. And they always talk about, you know, we're losing businesses not coming here, but, you know, hopefully this changes one day where businesses do go into COIL, but I don't think they're looking for COIL I mean, they're looking going to the big market areas where there's already going to be five-day school weeks. Well, and and this four or five-day school week is a little bit of a false narrative. When when we had as we continued to cut education budgets, uh, well, as we continued to keep education budgets flat, and as the number of students across the state continued to grow, uh, and our funding wasn't able to keep up with that, uh, they started looking at other things, and and mainly it was it was a way. Um, 
to, to bring teachers in and, and retain teachers. Um, I, I know that was one of the main reasons uh, Josh went to it over at COIL. Uh, it's one of the main reasons that my uh, school up in Blackwell looked at it and, and things like that. Where, where it becomes a real false narrative is Colorado's had four-day school weeks for the past 20 years. And, and nobody's talked about that. And it, and it hadn't hurt their test scores. It hadn't hurt their business uh, requirement, any, any, anything like that. Um, there, there does need to be a, a minimum number of time and an, and an adjustment. You know, kids need to be in school X amount of, of days or hours to learn what they need to learn. Uh, but letting the local boards kind of choose that, um, I, I do think is important. I think that in the mix, midst of all the other school funding formula talks and, and things that we got into over the last couple of years, this four-day school week kind of got wrapped up in this when, when they really are two separate issues. Uh, some schools are doing it to see cost savings, but mainly they're doing it to try to recruit teachers. Uh, right now, uh, to go back to my example of Blackwell, they've got about 13 open teaching positions where they just can't find the teachers. And if this allows them to recruit better teachers and it's a decision that the school board and the community wants to make, then we need to, we need to look out for the best interest of the kids, but we also need to let that local board who's elected by that local community make those kind of decisions. And Governor sits big on local control, and he's, he said that over and over. I mean, no offense to Representative Mize or Kevin Stitt, but I think jo uh, Superintendent Summerall and Blackwell Superintendent probably know their students, their districts a little bit more than those guys do. I, yeah, and to speak to that, I mean, I would I would argue that local control is is extremely important. I mean, I have a bit of an interesting district in the sense that you have Edmond schools, Deer Creek, Cash, and, and Guthrie, and those are all, you know. I would imagine, yeah, they're all different. They all have their own nuance. So I think it's important to, um, for any individual that has a, has a district um, like that to have relationship with the superintendent, uh, with the board to figure out what is working best for them. Um, but I mean, ultimately, outcomes uh, are kind of the proof in the, in the pudding. If we're not seeing lesser outcomes out of a district that has a four-day uh, school week versus a five-day school week, I, I mean, that's tough to, tough to argue that you need to go back. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of ultimately goes back to local control. And I think it's important for, regardless whether it's Senate or House, whichever chamber, um, you know, what are we trying to do from, from a state perspective? Where is leadership trying to, to take us and, and can we all jump on board there um, and have some, have some say so? Um, but are we, are we uh, along for what the ultimate goal is? Yeah. Chris, I gotta give a shout out to Superintendent Summerall uh, over in, in COIL. So he's seeking his doctorate uh, and he's doing his dissertation on four day school week. There you go. Uh, so I've been very fortunate uh, to, uh, to have a lot of detailed information about him and uh, what works and what doesn't work. I know he's been at the Capitol East twice this year. He, so. he certainly <laughs> has. Well, and I would imagine we all got that email, right? Uh, I bet yeah. you did. Yeah. Long. That's right. It's <laughs> yeah, very informative. <laughs> yeah. hey, real two quick notes on, on, on education. Uh, the House has sent two things over to the Senate. Uh, $1,000 tax credit for teachers out of pocket for their classroom and a $1,200 pay raise across the board for teachers. Yes, and, and both of those, uh, again, both of those measures were, were titled off because it's going to depend on, on where the budget negotiations settle down at. Um, but, but I think they're, they're important. I know the $1,200 teacher pay raise, which would take us to number one in the region, something Governor Stitt talked about in the state of the state. Um, I, I think one of the, uh, one of the more interesting things is, is everybody's trying to paint this as an either or. Either we get $1,200 additional uh, 
$1,200 for teachers, or we get more classroom funding. And that's simply not going to be the case. There's going to be a classroom funding portion in, in the state budget. Uh, it's going to be an increase in the formula, the same as there was an increase in the formula last year after we passed 1010XX, I think was the final name which we came up with. Might have missed 1X, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but um, whether, whether we do the $1,200 additional teacher pay raise or not, there's still going to be more uh, still going to be more money into the formula, uh, more additional dollars uh, for the classroom than, than there ever has been before in, in state history. Real quick, move over to the, to the COLA cost of living adjustment. I know you guys are all three at the Lincoln County uh, Fire Departments. They they talk about this uh, also for the teachers. But uh, being adjusted, looking at it, would adjust it a little bit. But it hadn't been done in about 10 years. And firefighters, teachers, uh, judges, and all that good stuff. But uh, uh, COLA bill did pass. Yeah, yeah, we uh, uh, we voted. It came through uh, committee, banking, financial services, and pension so I got to vote on it yeah, twice right. yeah uh, we voted for it at two percent through committee and then there was an amendment uh, to four percent on the floor um, you know I, I mean I think everybody unanimously was glad to do that um, but again the some of the conversations that I had was uh, were around stewardship and um, you know, those are those are never fun conversations to have when you're talking about potentially not giving someone a raise um, and, it, and it's not a matter of whether you wanted to or not, but you have to be forward looking in that, especially the way that those plans are set up as a defined benefit plan. So you're, you're projecting a future benefit with today's variables and some future variables that you don't even really know what those look like. Um, and this, this specific package was lumping everybody together and giving a, a blanket across the board. And, and there is specific nuance with each one of those pensions, um, the makeup and the people that are involved uh, some of them are, you know, quote unquote, fully funded at 80% or above. There was two that weren't. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, that uh, that, that will be um, a good faith, you know, vote and, and that we care and, and want to want to see them prosper in retirement. Yeah. I know Guthrie Fire Chief Eric Harlow, that was a big deal on his radar and the biggest one of the year. And he's like, I'm going to do a press release. You know what? I'll hold off. I better wait. <laughs> so as you were talking about. Well, taking a look at the actuarial ta tables are going to make a big difference to see where we can be on this. I'm a co-author uh, over on the Senate side of this of this COLA bill. So I believe in it. I've just, uh, you know, I've, uh, these retirees have, have donated their, uh, have offered their lives up. It's their life's work. And it's regretful that uh, in many cases uh, their, their retirement is not covering their cost of their health care. Um, you know, I, I take a look at these firefighters. Those are in public safety. I mean, their bodies are breaking down because they served us. Uh, and we really need to be there for them to the, to the extent that we can be. But there are a lot of costs with the teacher uh, reimbursement from the, from the classroom expenses, from the, from the teacher pay increase, from the COLA increase. I mean, we're over a billion dollars, uh, you know, in, in added cost and so uh, we, we're going to need to take a look at that a lot of this stuff is coming over to the Senate uh, we'll be looking at it in the uh, through the appropriations process and uh, and, and uh, hopefully we can come to an agreement uh, that, uh, that 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 serves the public good Passed the house 98 to 3 101 votes you don't rarely see 101 it, votes but it, yeah. it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> It was very rare, again, uh, partly because it's been 10 to 12 years since we've given uh, a cost of living adjustment. Um, and, and partly we're finally seeing some of the dividends of a lot of the hard work that was done uh, before any of, us, any of us got in the legislature. They made some extremely tough decisions, uh, took the money, took it off the top, put it into those funds, and stopped the adjustments for, 
for 50 years all we saw was taking out of the corpus of the funds um, and using it to give cost, cost of living adjustments simply to win re-elections. It was a great way to win elections. It was a horrible way to manage the state's money and, and take, care of our, uh, to take care of our state employees. Um, and, and the one thing I haven't wanted to see is see what's in, happened in other states like Wisconsin, parts of California, things like that, where they've actually had to go back and renegotiate with people who've been retired 10, 15, 20 years because their pension funds can no longer handle the burden. Thankfully, in Oklahoma, we don't have to do that now, and we're we're at a place where we can look at look at bringing some of that up and and, and giving a cola. It's it just it, it's been it's been hard. It's, it's taken a lot of restraint and a, and a lot of political will to say, no, we we've got to do what's what's best for the state. We've got to do what's best for the future of all state employees, and we've got to make some tough decisions now. And it's going to be painful for at least 10 to 12 uh, years going forward. Uh, but but we're finally seeing the div literally the dividends of that pay it off now. That's awesome. Uh, we'll move over to a constitu constitutional carry. I know this was the first bill that uh, the governor signed at, through the House and through the Senate. I know uh, Rep. Stimage, you had a, a trailer bill with this as well. And I got to be honest with you, I was like, uh, and then I kind of, you know, the more and more I heard about it, you know, the bad guys are going to take classes and they're not going to go do all that good stuff. So I've come around a little bit on this one too, but, uh, you know, you talk about that in, in your trailer bill. Yeah. So I was a, I was a joint author on that and, uh, you know, that was one of the things on the doorstep that I heard a lot about specific to this district. So, um, you know, I have my uh, uh, conceal and carry license. I went, paid the fee, took the class. Um, and yeah, I mean, this was a conversation I had. I didn't feel as if my rights were being infringed on to do that. Uh, but I'm a big proponent of personal accountability, regardless of what you're doing, especially with the responsibility of that nature. I was fine with the, you know, added buy-in, if you will. Um, but there was a lot of people uh, that were not. They didn't feel that that was necessary and that was an infringement on their rights. So um, I would say that I, I, would, I would hope that that would be viewed as we were listening to the people uh, in that sense. So um, as with any issue, especially a difficult one, um, there's going to be argument and good ones on both sides. Um, but the biggest thing for me is we're reciprocating or we were reciprocating to 15 other states. So you could carry constitutionally in our state as long as you weren't a resident of the state. Um, so that was kind of a kind of a no-brainer. Personally, I don't feel as if it changes a whole lot um, because we were already an open carry state. Um, you know, in, in talking with many people who are gun enthusiasts or pro, you know, Second Amendment, um, they're responsible gun owners anyway. Um, so I didn't I didn't feel like it really changed a ton, but it did certainly meet uh, the needs of, of that group of, of people. So I was proud to proud to sponsor that. Uh, I felt like it was returning a right, so to speak, to to the individuals that were, were concerned with that. Obviously, public safety is always a, a concern, but uh, the trailer bill that we had was just clean up. There were some specific areas that uh, gave people heartburn once we passed that. Yeah. Um, they were concerned about uh, the, uh, the zoo and parks. and parks, and so that was to kind of clean that up. And, and what I would say about that trailer bill is that was a collaborative 
collaborative effort. So everybody came to the table and they said, hey, we understand the Pro 2A and we understand the folks that want to be a little bit more conservative. How do we come together and put, put together legislation that uh, still keeps public safety in mind? Probably the most important thing is remember this doesn't going to take till November 20 or November 1st. So keep that in mind yeah. there. Not yeah. you guys, but our audience. <laughs> don't want to start too early. Don't want yeah, to jump the gun. Had some issue with that yeah. already. Yeah. yeah. For, for me, this was the easiest vote I've made. I think this year. Uh, I mean, we talked about it on the campaign trail. It's you know promises made, promises kept. Uh, I was yeah. very clear where I was going to be uh, if constitutional carry was put in front of me. Uh, and so it was. Um, I don't like to say no brainer because I think we use our brains. But it sure. was a it was an easy vote for me. I did have a couple of concerns that came up, and they were all met and addressed. Uh, one, you know, um, uh, one one concern uh, was related to um, what would happen to the OSBI losing four four million dollars, uh, you know, in revenue. The other thing I was concerned about was what kind of business uh, protections did we have? Uh, and so the business protection issue was met. Uh, you know, uh, businesses still have the have the right to post uh, whether or not they're going to accept that. And as a banker. Uh, you would expect me to be a little bit concerned about <laughs> right, that, right. Uh, you know. So when somebody comes into the bank packing a little heat and they ask to make a withdrawal, it gets whole new meaning yeah. uh, to, to making a withdrawal at, at the bank. As far as the four million dollar potential loss uh, to the uh, to the OSBI, uh, I believe, and in my own case, I, I'm a concealed uh, license holder, uh, and I plan to maintain that license. Yeah. I will be renewing it because I like to travel out of state, uh, and to have that license with me whenever I travel makes good sense uh, and so I don't think that the revenue projections uh, the pr pr the proposed revenue loss that the OSBI suggested is going to be there to the extent uh, I think many of us that already have those licenses will keep them and I think that there'll be new licenses uh, issued uh, which will come with training because most of us that are that are carrying uh, very much would like to travel and need to have that license and AB is looking into that not four million but maybe a little bit here and there to help that out to be bared in mind when, when they go through and, and do the final budgets and things. I, I do want to say, I, they, they keep talking about, let's see, we call it constitutional carry, the Democrats call it permitless carry, um, and or trainerless carry, or, or however they want to phrase it. I know a lot of people, and I don't want to dime out my friends, but I know lots of people up in North Logan County where we live who paid the 50 to $75 took a class which consisted of them meeting somebody at a gas station, signing the deal, and then them getting their deal. I, I think the level of training that was required varied from instructor to instructor, and you could go to a really good, uh, really good uh, concealed carry class, uh, which are several good instructors here in Guthrie that teach you a lot and do a lot, or you could find one on kind of the good old boy system where you pay them the money and sign your name. And, and so I. I think the, the amount of training was being oversold a little bit. And, and to kind of go back to what Gary said, this is easy to me because I go all the way up to the Kansas border. Kansas has had this for like 10 or 15 years, Missouri for 10 or 15 years. If you live five miles north of Newkirk in Kansas, you could already do this in Oklahoma. And, but if you lived in the town of Newkirk, you, you had to pay the money and stuff. So this, a lot of times we, no, this is going to drastically change the world and watch our armed robberies and murder rates are going to skyrocket and that's yeah, it makes not. for good sound bites if you're on the other side of that. Um, but what, what's this? Is it Vermont that has had constitutional carry since statehood? Vermont and New Hampshire. Yeah. I mean, they've yeah. And so it's also important to bear in mind that one of the cities with the strictest gun laws in the in the whole entire nation, Chicago, has some of the highest murder, armed robbery rates, things like that. It's it's more about the people in your state than, than the training a lot of times.
Come 180 on it. I mean, it just, you know, seeing a guy with a gun eating We could bring right it now. back up and we could give you a chance to push red or green. <laughs> no, no, no. I, you can I'm, feel the pressure. I feel good about it. I, I, I need the training and, and practice all that and, and all that good stuff. And I hope most people do too, to, to be uh, responsible in that. But uh, uh, real quick, another thing uh, before we wrap this up, government accountability. This is the second bill, I think, the uh, governor signed in the House and Senate going back and forth of what we can do, what we can do, and what the governor can. So, so this came with complete support uh, from, uh, from, from both the House uh, and the Senate, and frankly, it just, it just makes sense. Uh, you know, I can't, uh, being in business, I just, I cannot imagine that I would have uh, some, some vice presidents out there that I, that, that I don't have the hiring and firing uh, or, or can hold them accountable to the job that they're doing. Uh, the way it's working now, uh, it, it's just, it, it doesn't make sense to me. We elected a governor. Uh, we expect him to, to the, be the leader of our state and now that he'll have some uh, some authority over these uh, agency heads, particularly the big five, uh, just it, it's good common sense. And I'm, and I'm glad that uh, it was, you know, it was one of the first bills uh, that uh, that made it all the way to the governor's desk. It makes it makes good sense. And, and governor always has a perfect example. If, you know, if I'm hiring this this coach to go, you know, beat this university, but I pick your offense coordinator and he picks your defense coordinator. Eh, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> not I'm responsible well. for beating them. I want the, you know, I want to be all responsible on me. And this is, it truly is a huge and fundamental way to the, to the way we do government in the state of Oklahoma. And, and, and this is not a new problem. I mean, you can, you can search back through the Oklahoma editorial sections all the way back to when Bellman was governor the first time and find examples where everybody's saying, we need to change this. We've just never agreed on a framework before. And now we finally have. Uh, the governor has the ability to hire and fire these agency heads. We've reorganized the boards and made them at will. The governor gets five board appointments. The pro tem of the Senate gets two. The speaker gets two. Uh, and we have the ability to remove these agency heads in case they go completely rogue uh, with a two-thirds vote of the House and Senate. And so it's, we, we're, we're seeing a more transparent process. We're seeing a process where these agency heads are actually back accountable to people who are elected instead of people who are just appointed by you know the last governor or the governor before that or in some cases even the governor before that and and hopefully what we see is is a better handle a better response from our agencies and, and an end to this kind of political gamesmanship that we got into. I know one of the things that, that I've had several conversations with the governor about is he goes, I want my agency heads to come in and when they give you budget proposal numbers, you need to trust those numbers. They're, this is what they actually need to do their jobs. And, and what we're seeing right now is the same thing we saw in, in years, uh, we've seen in years past is uh, the Department of the Corrections comes in and they say, oh, we need $7 billion uh, to fund fund correction, not, not to throw Representative, or Director Albaugh under the bus or anything because it's the way it's always been, right? You ask for seven times what you actually need or 20 times what you actually need to hope to get the, the couple million in, in increase. And, and that's not what we've ended up doing is this circle of this pattern of where we just lie to one another and we can't find the actual numbers that we need to serve the people. And hopefully this is the first step to putting it into all that. What's happening in the House where like there's 90 votes? You, you used to be fighting to get 51 votes, and Democrats are, are passing bills now. What I mean, it's a big turnaround from a year ago, and it's it's kind of cool to see actually. It, it's bit. very cool to see. Um, we've lost uh, on the on the House side. We've lost a lot of the contentious. 
Sportsmanship, ego, contentiousness, rancor. It's amazing now that Scott Inman's not there and not running for governor anymore. Things First move thing a, lot, yeah. a lot faster. We, we really have a good working relationship uh, with the Democrats, and, and they are the minority party. We're trying to give them a, a voice on, on, on some of their issues that are important, and we're not always going to agree. And sometimes they're going to bring bills up that are that are bad, and, and they're going to get voted down, in, in our opinion. But, but at least giving them that opportunity to present that kind of stuff on the floor. We've, it, it's easier to do that when you have a better working relationship and you're not calling news conferences or putting out press releases, just calling people out by name or things like that. It's, a, again, a much better atmosphere than we've, than we've seen in the whole time I've ever It was must-see TV last year, and there's a, there's a big change. That's right. You guys, uh, your thoughts on Governor Kevin Stead? I, I like it. You know, he's not polished at, at news conferences. He doesn't know, you know the answers to everything or doesn't give a political answer to it. And he doesn't know who Republicans are, Democrats. He doesn't know any. I mean, he will over time, obviously. But uh, uh, your thoughts on, on the governor so far? Well, I, I can relate, obviously, sure. just being an outsider. Um, so a lot of that actually resonated with me through the campaign, and, and I appreciated that about him. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not polished. I'm sure it will become more so. I mean, if you've heard him speak and followed him, even since being sworn in, he gets better and better every time. Um, but I think he's a, he's a genuine individual who cares about what he's doing and cares about the state. And, uh, you know, honestly, some of that, um, pomp and circumstance, so to speak, is, is just that. Uh, and I think having been successful in the private sector, knowing what he can accomplish, if you can take that mentality and attitude into the public sector, you know, it gives you, gives you a lot of confidence. Maybe you don't know um, the ropes yet, but you can figure it out just like anything else. So I, I've really enjoyed getting to visit with him, got to eat breakfast with him one morning. And my kids, we were, we were leaving. Uh, they were up there for a couple hours and I had to take them. We were making a trade today that they were off school for the weather and they got to meet him and they talked about it. The rest of the day was kind of neat. And when I say not polished, I mean not polished as, politi as political, giving yeah. you political answers. If you know, you don't know. So people were tired of the political. Yeah, answer, absolutely. Honestly. It's yeah. it's nice. I enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I find it be I find it refreshing to be able to have just a just a casual conversation with the governor and co and a coworker. Yeah. I, you know, we see him in the in the Capitol halls. You know, he will visit representative offices and yeah. Senate offices. Yeah. And I had heard that. I'd heard tell of that. But I my experience was uh, my uh, my. Assistant uh, uh, Kayla Plagg, who's a resident here uh, in in the Guthrie area, uh, said, um, you know, said, hey, the governor would like to see you, and, and so I get up and grab my jacket, and we go, where's he? At? Well, he's he's right there. <laughs> I mean, he's in the office, you know. Uh, you know, came by to, to say hi, want to sit down and talk, and wanted to look at the family pictures, and and uh, you know, and and just get to know me. Uh, and when I talked to some of the senior members in the legislature, uh, you know, governors that they've worked with, they that had not happened. Yeah. Uh, and so it really makes you feel like that you can approach the governor and that he's really willing to listen uh, to where you're coming from and, and how you can better serve your constituency. And, and I appreciate that about him. It's just been really great. And, and the people who he's appointing uh, in key positions are, are very good and very qualified. Um, we're, we're not seeing the political cronyism of, of past administrations. Um, we're, we're seeing people who he goes, okay, here, here's what we need to do and here's what we need to fix. You go do that. That's your job, and, and do it, and then holding them accountable. And it's it's really 
everybody keeps saying, but it's really refreshing to see that on the second floor. I think in a word, he's genuine. Yes. Yeah. What you see is what you get. Yep. Real quick, I omitted this question. I need to get into this the final question of the day for Representative Mize. The film and industry bill. Yeah. You caught that went through, and that uh, could be a good impact for Guthrie and many other towns. I was I was really pleased to um, get that bill and have the opportunity to, to run that through. Um, what it does is it uh, basically frees up for that office uh, to go and recruit more film and music business to the state. So kind of takes handcuffs off, um, increases their limit with which to go and negotiate when they're going to these film festivals or music festivals and they need to secure venue space. And I think you, you got that one too. It's coming to you. I'm looking forward I to, it to for you. You, you teed it up. I'm looking forward to carrying the water. So you yeah. and I are co-authors on that and we're excited about what we can yeah. do for Guthrie as it, as it relates to that piece of legislation. Momentum. I think that's, you know, it, for me, looking for areas that, that we have momentum, if we're talking about diversifying our economy, uh, that was that was a no-brainer. So helping out the helping out the hometown. Absolutely. All right, we've gone over time. We need to exit stage left. Representative Mize, Senator Hall, Representative Pfeiffer, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, six weeks down, a few more weeks to go, and uh, appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Again, thank you for tuning in as well. We'll talk to you next time on the Roundup.